So we're going to read verses 1 through 4 again, and then we're going to stop on 4 for a, a minute, we'll say, all right? In fact, we might stop on 4 for quite a while. So, 2 Peter chapter 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, all right? Um, may grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, through what? His glory and goodness. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through those promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. All right, we're going to stop there for a minute. Um, let's go back over what we, uh, what we did previously to, uh, to introduce this. This is Peter, the same Peter that was called to be the, uh, the lead apostle, if you will, um, I noticed here that the NIV just goes, uh, goes ahead and simplifies it and says Simon Peter uh, in order, I guess, to uh, help us understand it's the same person. But in the Greek, it's Simeon Peter, and that's not something different. Uh, Simeon was the, the, the Hebrew way of saying the name. It was a very common name. Simeon uh, was one of the most common names at this point in time among the Jewish people. So this is definitely... Uh, Peter says he's a, he says he's a bond servant. This means he's chosen to be a servant. He's not a slave because he's forced to be God's slave. He chose to be that slave and an apostle. That means that he's been someone who is sent by the Lord on a mission. And more specifically, uh, he's one of the 12, which means that he was with the Lord from the beginning all the way through the resurrection. And the Lord gave them the commission to testify of that resurrection uh, the Apostle Paul is chosen later and is given the same mission. Then he says he writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That's how the ESV terms it. Um, so this is something that they received. You all have an opportunity to have faith. Everybody has a mustard seed of faith, right? Some people talk about how they, you know, they would like to have more, you know, more faith. They'd like their faith to be stronger, but the Lord didn't say you had to have a lot of faith. He didn't say you have to have strong faith. He said you have to have faith. See, it's not the size of your faith. It's the size of the object your faith is in. So if I have a little faith in a big God, I'm just as saved as if I have a lot of faith in a big God. Does that make sense? You just need to trust him, whatever your doubts may be. So he says um, he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal value or equal standing. We've received it. We've obtained it. So um, what he's saying is that the faith of the apostles is not greater than your faith. Your faith gives you equal standing. Again, because it's the same Lord Jesus Christ that you're putting your faith in. Now, that's not to say that greater faith would not be important. Greater faith will be of great benefit to you. But you need to understand that God is not moving in your life because of the size of your faith. He's moving in your life because you've chosen to trust him. The more deeply you trust him, the better your life is going to go. The more deeply you trust him, the more you're going to move out in that faith, and you're going to realize, as we're going to see in a moment, these promises. But you just need to start where you're at. We have the same, our faith has the same value as the faith of the apostles, as the faith of Peter, as the faith of these, uh, these recipients of this letter. All right, so that's who he's writing to. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, I mentioned this last week, this is a very high Christology. Jesus is called our God and Savior. So I think that many people in our part of the world don't have trouble with that, although it seems to me that more and more people are departing from that faith that Jesus is one with the Father, right? That we we have this this. God that is mysterious and uh, expresses himself in three persons, though he is one God. Uh, those three persons are the Father, the what? The Son, and the... They are co-equal. They are co-existent. They are co-eternal. What does that mean? That means the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal, or they wouldn't be able to be one. Right? 
coexistent. That means they have God in three persons has always existed. The Father has always existed. The Son has always existed. The Spirit has always existed. God has existed in three persons for all eternity, right? Coexistent, co-eternal. So um, that's why in the karate class, to help the kids understand this, and every every symbol you would use of the Trinity is going to fall apart if you put too much pressure on it. But at the beginning of class, I have the kids hold their hands up like this, and then we put them on the ground, and then we put our forehead in there, and we say, Yesu Washunari, which is Japanese for Jesus is Lord. But Craig and I always tell them this represents one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, children can understand this. In fact, maybe better than you, because you and I are sitting here trying to rationalize it. Well, how can that be? How can three be one and one be three? You know, I, you don't know, and neither do I know. But you know what? I'll just do this because maybe this will help somebody tonight. All right. And I'll do it on this table so that uh, the camera can see it there. Okay. So we are living in a temporal, spatiotemporal set of dimensions, three, three uh, dimensions of space and one dimension of time, four dimensions, spatiotemporal. Okay. So you got back and forth, you got side to side, you got up and down, right? That's, a, that's your spatial dimension. And then time. You and I only experience time going in one direction. You can't go back in time no matter how many movies you watch. I, I'm just telling you, time travel will never be possible. It's ludicrous. You can go in one direction. But God is above time. So for God, all time is like the equivalent of one moment for you and I. It's how, how, it's almost impossible to understand. And God can focus his attention at any time and any place. But in the same respect as God experiences time in a sense of simultaneousness, if you will, God exists in a set of dimensions, and we call this the heavens or heaven, in a set of dimensions that are beyond ours. Perhaps you could think of them as being surrounding ours, superimposed upon ours, but you can't experience those, although in the spirit we can receive a degree of perception of the heavenlies, right? The Apostle Paul talked about being carried away in the spirit, uh, or actually he said he didn't know if it was in the body or in the spirit, uh, and uh, into the heavens and so forth. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't come up with this illustration myself, but I want you to imagine that this tabletop represents... Well, it does represent, if you just look at the surface alone, represents two dimensions, okay? So let's say there's a group of people that live on this tabletop. This is their world, okay? Out here beyond this, they can't go. But they can't go up and they can't go down either. In fact, the only thing that these people know is back and forth, up and uh, right and left, okay, width and, and, and breadth, if you will, okay, back and forth, up, you know, side to side, back and forth, let's just say it that way, I'm trying to say it in a way that makes sense rather than using term, right, side to side, back and forth, that's all they experience, they don't experience an up and down, there is no up and down for them, you could talk to them about it and they would have no idea what you're talking about, because there is no up and there is no down for them, all they experience is back and forth, side to side, now, if I were to take my hand and do this, what would they see? They would just see the three pads of my fingers, wouldn't they? Would they be able to look up and see me? No. Would they be able to look below this table and see my legs here? No. Do you understand what we're talking about here? This is one God who exists outside our spatiotemporal dimensions who has expressed himself in three persons. Now, I'm not saying that the three persons are like, you know, the three pads of his fingers. I'm just trying to help you to understand that our, our, our understanding of space and time is extremely limited. And we're talking about a God who created the world 
out of his own resources. We say that God created the world ex nihilio, which means out of nothing. That means out of nothing that was previously created. The universe is not eternal. The universe began to exist at a point in time. That's been scientifically proven, and this is why now you have these, these theoretical physicists and these cosmologists that need to dance around this and start talking about the multiverse. There's no evidence for a multiverse. And even if there was, where did the multiverse come from? You're just, you're just extending this out one more level, right? The reality is, scientifically, and I won't go into the evidence, there is evidence that the universe began to exist, and prior to that, it did not exist. So matter and time even are not eternal. At least they have not always existed in the past, right? And it appears that uh, according to the second law of thermodynamics, thermodynamics, the law of entropy, that everything is moving apart from everything else and all energy in the universe is gradually, gradually depleting. So that if left to itself, eventually, billions and billions and billions of years from now, all matter will be so remote from all other matter, and all energy will be so depleted that everything will just be static. There'll be no more energy in the universe. Well, God's going to bring things to an end long before that happens. But this is what you need to understand. When we're talking about things like the Trinity and talking about God creating the universe out of nothing, these are not unscientific ideas, right? We're talking about concepts that are above and beyond our capability to uh, perceive with the five senses. But even scientists who try to discuss the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe, they have to use mathematical models to help understand what was going on. In other words, symbols, right? There's not, a, there's, not a, there's not perception there. There's not, oh, well, we can go back. In fact, when they get back to those, those early fractions of a fraction of a fraction of a second after what has been called the Big Bang, they still really have a difficult time being able to discuss, explain, or even understand what was going on. Well, this is where uh, theologians have known for you know, millennia that God created the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Call that a big bang if you want to call that a big bang. But the reality is, this is the God we're talking about. And so when we're looking at this high Christology where Jesus is called our God and Savior, this is not something the apostles just invented. They didn't just say, you know what? We just really want to elevate Jesus and make him God. That would, that, that's so anti-Jewish. This is why every time Jesus even, even broached the topic, they picked up stones to stone him. At one point he said, I and the Father are one. They picked up stones to stone him. They were like, you, what are you saying here? At another point he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And in Aramaic he was probably using God's name. It's a very high Christology. That's the God we're worshiping who has expressed himself and has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, right? All right, and then um, we were, we're given this blessing, grace, and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and Savior, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's where you're going to get grace, and that's where you're going to get peace, right? Peace is not meditation. You can feel better for a while, right? Breathing exercises are not bad. Pastor Craig was talking to the kids, uh, it's been about a month ago, I think now, um, about, I guess this was right after he had gone to his, uh, the middle school where he's the, uh, the assistant principal at now. And I, don't, I, I didn't get clear whether this was, this was a student or whether this was a teacher, um, but somebody was having like a breathing attack. You know, it's a panic attack, basically what it is. Everybody's scared. This COVID's got a lot of people scared. And Craig was just trying to help them to stop, slow down, and breathe. Well, that's not a bad thing to do. You can learn to slow down and breathe, but that's not really peace. That's just a temporary uh, peace, if you will. True peace comes through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And he is the one that offers us grace, right? Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. God offers his riches to you and to I at Christ's expense on the cross, okay? 
Then he says, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything for life and godliness. What I mentioned last week, you don't have to get a second blessing or go to a conference or all of these other things. Not to, that's not to say the Lord will not give you new uh, experiences of his grace and of his spirit, but you don't have to have that in order to progress forward in your faith. You have everything you need right now if your faith is in Jesus, right? He's already given us everything we need for life and godliness. What's godliness? That's just the Christian life, if you will. That's your life as a worshiper, right? So you got everyday life, right? The stuff that you do, the stuff that you got to do to get by, to meet your ends, all that. But hopefully what we're doing is we're acknowledging the Lord in everything that we do, and we're turning even that into a worship experience. Godliness is your life as a devoted follower of Jesus. There really needs to be a distinctive in you from other people. If you're just out there like everybody else, right, um, hollering and swearing and, you know, whatever, um, that's not to say that we don't get mad and make mistakes and all these other sorts. But if we're just no different than anybody else, then has Christ even entered our lives? You know, has he made a difference in our lives? So he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Now, as we're going to see uh, shortly, I hope, not to by the end of this time period together, um, we still have something to do. That doesn't mean just because we, well, I've got it all. I don't need to do anything. No, you do, right? Um I like, I, I give this quote all the time by Dallas Willard, uh, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. I did not earn grace. I cannot earn grace. You have been granted grace, and all you need to do is trust the Lord. But that doesn't mean you don't have anything to do, right? Grace is not opposed to effort. Unless you expend some effort, unless you put some hustle into your faith, you're going to stay stuck in the same mud pit, right? It's like anybody ever, you know, been in a, a vehicle that got stuck, right? Okay, you know, out there four-wheeling, you get stuck in the mud. I had a Camaro when I was uh, out of high school. Uh, I worked real hard, and I got my parents to sign a, a car note for me. So I was driving a two-year-old Camaro, driving a, a Type LT Camaro. Man, I loved my car. It was great. We had some friends uh, from church, actually, that went water skiing at Lake Pleasant. Now, if you've ever been in Phoenix, Lake Pleasant is really, really misnamed. It's not really all that pleasant. <laughs> it's a man-made lake, and it's just, yeah. But anyway, you know, they were water skiing, but they had gone somewhere around to the backside of this lake. And I didn't know where they were. And they went earlier than me, and I was going to meet them out there. So I start driving down this dirt road, you know, in the desert on the backside of Lake Pleasant. And I keep going around, going around, going around, going around, going around. I can't find them. I don't know where they are. And I mean, this road is not really much of a road anyway, but it keeps getting narrower and bumpier. So this is a Camaro, not meant for four-wheeling, okay? And... It wasn't like a super fancy Camaro with positive traction rear end. And if, what basically what that means is that both of your wheels actually turn. See, what you don't realize, perhaps, is that um, you get your standard two-wheel drive car, um, at least back in the old days, um, only one of those wheels is actually doing the work. Right? You have to have a positive traction rear end so that both of the wheels are doing the work. Now, the way things are now with front-wheel drive cars and so forth, it might not all, all be the exact same way. But basically, I can remember stepping on it in my car, and I could see you know, one wheel would leave a real, real black tread mark, and the other one would hardly leave any, anything at all. Well, it wasn't a positive traction rear end. Well, that's really bad when you're in this wilderness that I was in, There'd been no rain, which is classic for the desert, okay? So average amount of rain in Phoenix is nine inches a year. Okay, yeah, we get that in a week here. Sometimes you know, we get that in a couple of days, right? So it's, that's why Arizona is called Arizona, Arida Zona, the arid zone, okay? Just not a lot of rain. So I get all the way to the back, get to the, the back side of this thing, and then there's this dip, and it goes down, but at the bottom it's sort of widened out. So that okay, I'm, you know, 
I, I can't turn around because otherwise I was going to have to go over all these rocks and potentially run over, you know, cactus thorns that were going to stick up on my tire or whatever. But I saw down this, you know, down this little dip right here, the lake's over here, that I, I you know, if I can't find them, I'm at least going to be able to turn my car around. So I go down this dip, and I mean, my car slid down the dip. I get to the bottom, I get turned around, and I can't get back up that hill for any reason. My wheels just going, my Camaro is useless. I had to go hunt somebody down. I finally found a, a ranger out there that had a Jeep, and he locked it, and he brought a cable down there, and he dragged me up out of that thing. It was the most miserable experience. But you know, some people are like that in their Christian life. They're just stuck. They're just, and instead of going and finding someone to help them pull them out, they just camp out there. Now, I couldn't find anybody right away, so I did have to go hang out with these people that were over by the lake and, you know, talk to them for a little while and try to figure out what was going on. But some people, that's, that's where they are with their faith. They just kind of give up and just go hang out and just don't go anywhere, right? Well, you've got everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us um, by his own glory and excellence, or to his own glory and excellence. All right, now verse 4. Through which, that is through his glory and excellence, he's given, given us his exceedingly great and valuable promises. So that's in the perfect tense. He gave us those promises, and the results remain with us. It's a gift that is granted without petition on the part of the receivers. So he's already given these promises to you even before you ask for them. They're available. The question is, are you going to do a little research into finding out what those promises are, what God has offered you, okay? God is intent in giving us the promises, not for our own pleasure or even our happiness, but so that we can share in his own nature, so that through them, through the promises, you may participate in the divine nature. That's holiness. I don't know what your idea of holiness is, you know, the picture I got in my, my head is, you know, these ladies with these long dresses down below their knees that don't wear makeup and you don't play cards and you don't go to movies and, you know, it's all these externals, right? That's kind of the old, the old holiness churches, right? Wesleyan churches and so forth. But holiness is participation in the divine nature. I'm becoming more and more like God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's holiness. And I'm going to do that not by working. No, I'm going to do that by trusting. When I found that guy with the Jeep, he got his winch. He locked up at the, at the top of the hill. He got his winch. He pulled it down there. I can't even remember what he looped around on the front of my car. Okay. Cause this is, it had a, no, it had a metal bumper. My bad. That was, that was the, the, one of the last years with the, it had a metal bumper. So he hooked around that and drag me up out of there. That's kind of what we do, right? We lift our arm up. You know, it's Peter. Hey, Lord, can I come to you on the water? Jesus said, come on. Peter gets his eye on the storm. He starts to sink. Lord, save. Lord immediately grabs him by the arm, pulls him up. Wherever you are, however stuck you are, throw that arm up and call out to the Lord, right? And he's going to pull you up and out. Well, you might say that the cable that hooks to, to, to me, uh, that's his promises, Right? He's going to offer that promise. He's going to speak that promise. And that cable comes down to me, and I hook it to me, and then that promise is attached to the one who gave it. And God, through that promise, through his word, is going to pull me out of this hole that I find myself in. Okay? So here's some essential promises that Jesus made. And by the way, um, those of you that have been around for a while know that LifeWell was not always this, the name of this church. Right? So I'm looking in this room, a lot of you are fairly new. But what was the name of this church originally? It was called Zion. And the reason that I called it Zion was because I wanted people to look in that Old Testament and I wanted to, them to see those promises that were made to God's people, many of which had the name Zion attached to them. And they would begin to see themselves in Christ, grafted into the olive tree of Israel and potential recipients of those promises. Now, we can't take them out of context, and we sought not to do that, but 
Um, I, that's that's what I wanted people to do. Well, you know, outsiders get confused as Zion. What is that? Is that Jewish? You know, the Rastafarian. You know what? No, no, I'm good. We're gonna. I love the name. Uh, it's a beautiful biblical concept. But I just don't need. And honestly, it's primarily white dudes oh, about my age and up that were you know that way. Young people were like, no, that's cool. You know, they thought it was great. You know. Um, but nonetheless, I just didn't want people getting confused and I wanted something that would, I don't know, resonate with anybody. Well, a well is going to resonate with anybody, right? Everybody needs water and life well comes from the same passage of scripture where we got our motto, our, our motto, our old motto was, um, spirit and truth, right? Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's John chapter four. Well, a little further down. Uh, Jesus said that uh, the woman could receive from him a, a new kind of water, water that would become in her a well of water or spring of water welling up to everlasting life. Life well. There it is, right? All right, so there's a short history of our church. Here's some five essential promises uh, that Jesus made. First and foremost is eternal life. This is why, guys, we need to be praying for our country. We really do. We need to be praying about this election. But in the end, I'm not terribly worried. <laughs> I know where I'm going, right? Do you know where you're going? Well, you're offered the opportunity to have eternal life. Now, eternal life is not the same as saying everlasting life. Everlasting life has this idea that I'm just going to just go on living down here as I'm living. Do you know that that's why God separated Adam and Eve from the tree of life after they sinned? so they would not live in everlasting sin. Death, in that sense, is a gift. It causes an end to all of this, right? Now, we're going to stand before God in judgment, and then we've got to face judgment and the after, uh, you know, the consequences of, of sin. In fact, I'm likely going to talk about Judgment Day on Sunday. Um, people seem to be interested in talking about the end times, and I want people to understand when Jesus returns, the primary reason he's returning is to bring judgment to the earth and set up his kingdom. That's it. Came the first time for salvation. He's going to come at the end to bring justice. So eternal life. John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have all the old translation says everlasting life, but the concept is eternal life. This is a God quality of life. This is a, a type of life that can only be had with God. It's not just living forever and ever in our current set of circumstances. Even if you had the best of everything, what if you had the best of everything? What if you had all the money you needed? What if you had the best health? What if you had the best food? What if you had the best house and the best spouse? Do you think you could be happy with that forever and ever and ever? See, I don't think so. And that's because we weren't made for just this. You were made to be a worshiper. You were made to be in the presence of God. That's what you're missing. We might seek all this fulfillment, happiness, purpose, and whatever in other things, but we're never going to obtain it until we find God. As Augustine, St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo said, we are restless until we find rest in thee. Um, there are more verses here that we could bring to bear. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever um, believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Dallas Willard, same fella again. It's a long quote. I quote it often at funerals. But he said, when we die, we might not even realize we're dead for a little while because there's a continuity to life, right? And this is what I used to tell our, our oldest member who passed away in March, uh, Vernon, all the time. I said, Vernon, you know, my prayer is you're just going to close your eyes on this world and you're going to open your eyes in heaven. Well, um, Saturday going into Sunday in March, that's exactly what happened. Vernon went to sleep sometime that day and they came in and checked on him and his physical body here was unresponsive. That's, guys, this is what we want. This is what we want. This is going to keep you from worrying about all of this down here to know I've got something more, right? And this is also going to cause me to want to share with other people because I want them to share that with me. 
This is going to cause you to really want to raise your children in the fear and admonition of Christ, not just so they'll behave. You want them to, you know, have eternal life with you. Okay? Answered prayer. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. What did Jesus say? Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Uh, again and again, he promised answered prayer. He said um, that uh, uh, if we will, let's go to John 15, 7 here. Um, hang on just a second. I want to get to this. I don't want to mis misspeak the, the promise in any way. All right. This is the NIV, John 15, 7. If you remain in me, if you stay in me, if you stick with me, and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Wow. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. That's a promise. That's what we need to count on. That's what we're talking about here, all right? We're promised the Holy Spirit. Uh, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus makes this extended promise that he's going away, but the Holy Spirit is going to come down and be with us. In fact, in Luke's version of the, the uh, passage that I quoted a minute ago where Jesus said, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. At the conclusion to that, Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, it's the presence of God. I might ask for money because I need to, you know, pay my rent. I need to get food and I need to take care of the needs of my kids and so forth. But in the end, it's not all of these things that we think we need down here. It's the presence of God. See, the Holy Spirit brings the presence of God, brings heaven down into you right now. Okay. Purpose and a productive life. So if we go back a couple of, uh, or not a couple of chapters, we go back one chapter in John, and we look at John 14, 12, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. What? Jesus did some amazing things. But the next verse is going to help us understand why we are able to do greater things. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why do I include this under productivity? Because you and I are going to be doing things that accomplish the will of God. That's what's genuinely productive, right? Now, I may feel productive because I finally fixed the toilet upstairs. Yay, me. Three trips to Home Depot, filthy hands, and very close to cursing several times. But I fixed the toilet. Right? So, yeah, I can feel like, you know, uh, or I prepare a Bible study and I get it all done and I'm ready. And I'm good, you know, or I go to the gym and I finish my workout. Okay, yeah, that's good. But genuine productivity is when I accomplish the will of God, when I do something that fulfills God's will in my life. Now, that may include all sorts of things. It might include the conclusion of a karate class when, you know, I've had a good class and the kids come up and talk to me afterwards and, you know, and I see, you know, uh, I see one of our kids that, that promoted, all right, uh, uh, Anthony and Monica's son, uh, their oldest son, uh, Aiden, promoted on Tuesday, proud of him. That makes me feel productive. Even though he did the work, makes me feel productive. It makes me feel like, hey, you know, he learned something. But see, that's along the line of um, being productive for the Lord and doing his will, because these kids have to memorize scripture in order to do this. So that's, you know, I mean, I'm, the first thing I did is ask Aiden the, the verses, right? And then I asked him questions about a couple of the verses. You know, I asked him, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to ask a 10-year-old what his goals are, you know. So he, he quoted, uh, he quoted uh, uh, Proverbs 16.3, you know, commit whatever you do to the Lord and your plans will succeed. And I said, well, do you understand what that means? I said, you know, do you have, do you have any goals? He said, well, yeah, to grow up. He's <laughs> like, well, okay. I guess if I were 10, that's, you know, grow up and, you know, not get in trouble. And, oh, okay. Well, we'll see. You know, you do what you're supposed to do on a day-to-day -day basis and you'll escape a whole lot of trouble and whatnot. All right. But the point is that's being productive is fulfilling the Lord's will for your life. Right. Um, uh, and that's, uh, we are told back to John chapter 15, uh, 
I quoted just a moment ago, if you remain in me, my words remain in you, ask whatever you will and you'll be done for you. But then he says in verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing or proving yourselves to be my disciples. So I'm not just remaining in Christ's word and being obedient to him so that I can get what I want. No, in fact, his word changes me so that I want what he wants. And then he says, his father is glorified if I bear much fruit. And that proves that I'm one of his disciples. That's productivity. That's purpose, right? And that's a promise that comes from the word, right? So eternal life, answered prayer, the presence of the Holy Spirit, purpose. And this is not an exclusive list. This is just five things. And then peace. Boy, do we need peace right now, right? Okay. Peace is a is a fruit of the spirit. We're going to go back to uh, going to go back to John again, and John um, fourteen, verse twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And then in John sixteen, verse thirty three. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Well, that's true, isn't it? It's just a promise. COVID or no COVID, protests or no protests, things may seem to be going well with you, things may not seem to be going well with you. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, period. Right? The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 14, I think it's verse 22, said uh, we must go through many trials before we enter the kingdom of God. We need to stop thinking we're going to build heaven down here. This ain't heaven. Now we can make it a better world. You can make it a better world, but that doesn't mean you're not going to go through trouble. But this is why we need the Lord's peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And that's what you and I are called to do as well. We're called to overcome the world. So through um, these promises that he's given us, we can participate in the divine nature. That means we're, we're made more holy, more like Christ, and escape the corruption which is in the world through lust. Well, I, I alluded to this earlier. Um, the entire universe is subject to entropy. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything's, everything's falling apart, right? And the older we get, the more we know that, right? Everything's falling apart. Body's falling apart. I'm trying to go to the gym and try to, you know, but it's falling apart. So, you know, young people are like, ah, oh, man, I'm going to live forever. I'm just, I'm strong and young and happy and energetic and, you know, whatever, kid, just wait, just wait. The fun is coming. <laughs> All right. The world's falling apart, but take courage. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. Well, listen, this is, this is how we overcome. Um, the word that is used here, uh, when it says, escape the corruption which is in the world, the, the word for corruption is the word phthoros in Greek. And this is uh, from the Greek-English Greek lexicon of the New Testament. This is the definition. A state of moral corruption and depravity. Wow. And we certainly see that all around us, right? How do we escape that? I mean, I find myself fighting you know, temptation every day of all sorts of you know, varieties. You can say no, right? That's the old, you know, a lot, some of you are younger in here. Some of us are older. You can remember the, the just say no campaign from the Reagan administration, Nancy Reagan, trying to get, get kids to say no to drugs, just say no to drugs. But you can only say no for so long. You've got to have, you, you need to have something that you can say yes to. That's what these promises are about. It's not just about saying no, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that because God doesn't want me to. But what do I do? Right? I need to replace all of these no's with yeses. Because what, I real, what I'll realize is that anything that I really, really deeply desire probably has a, a good component behind it. Okay? But it's been corrupted. It's been Listen, the devil can't create. All the devil can do is lie and stimulate desires that God has given to each of us. Those desires just have to be pointed in the right direction. And they have to be uh, in God's timing. 
So, I mean, we could come up with all sorts of things, but I, I, I don't want to just shoot in the dark here, okay? Um, escape the corruption which is in the world through lust or through evil desire. Well, the word that is used here, and it can be translated, you know, it can, be, it can refer to good or bad desires, is the word epithomia, and it just means an, that it, that's it, an eager desire, a strong desire, uh, and that can end up being something like covetousness, a desire to have something that somebody else has, right? Now, I try to help kids understand the Ten Commandments on a regular basis. It's one of the things kids can do, kids can do to my karate club. I haven't required that for a belt level yet, although I probably should, but the, the Tenth Commandment is, you know, thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. Well, kids don't even know what that word is, right? Well, it's to want something that somebody else has. Now, that I, I always tell kids, that's not the same thing as setting a goal to have something that someone else has, right? So um, I, got, uh, I got this phone, it's an iPhone SE. This is their, their low-end model. And it's a really good little phone. Now, if you said, you know what, uh, let me look at that. And you looked at it and you're like, hey, that is a good phone. I think I want one of those. That's not coveting. But if you looked at this phone and said, I want that phone. Look at that red phone with the Baylor pop socket on it. I want that phone right there. That's covetousness, right? That's an eager desire for something someone else has, and that's what leads to, you know, to stealing from them, basically, all right? But how do we escape the, those desires? Um, we look to these, these promises, okay? So um, the promise is uh, epangelo, right? And that is to announce that somebody is going to do or furnish something right? So when that's God speaking his word, right? Now this is why as parents, you got to be careful what you tell your kids when it concerns promising them things. Because you may have all the great intentions in the world, but I can remember a few times when I was a kid that I thought promises had been made to me and perhaps I got it wrong or perhaps I didn't get it wrong, but the promise was not fulfilled and that's discouraging, right? It's better to say, it's, th this is the standard parental reply anyway, it's better to just say, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Rather than say, no, 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 we're going to do that. We're gonna absolutely going to do that. No, we'll see. Right? Well, how do I know? No, 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 we'll, we'll see. Right? Until I know that I'm going to be able to carry that out. But God always carries out his word. He always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. Epangelma literally comes from two Greek words, epi, upon, and angelos, messenger. So a promise is only as good as the one promising it. Right? If somebody's untrustworthy, it doesn't matter what promises they make. Hey, guys, if you come to Wednesday night Bible study next week, I'm going to give every one of you a $100 bill. Wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. And then I start thinking about that. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. So that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a good promise for me to make, right? But, you know, if you've got somebody that's not trustworthy and they're out on the street, hey, man, hey, come over here. I got a Rolex watch I want to sell you for $5. I don't think that's a good promise. I don't think that's a real Rolex, you know? Even if it was a real Rolex and it was stolen, they'd be trying to get more money out of it than that. So, all right? There's, a, there's a, a, a good example. All right? So how are, we, how are we to receive these promises? First, we believe and realize that God is our loving Father by coming to him through his son Jesus. Next, we acknowledge that all of his promises remain true because we're his people and those promises is for, are for us. So I've given you all obvious promises from the New Testament. But... One of the primary reasons to pay attention to the Old Testament is to see what God began to promise to his people. And again, we're grafted into that olive tree of Israel, and those promises are offered to us as well. Next, we receive the holy presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and we search the New Testaments, uh, the Old and New Testaments of the Christian Bible for promises. You need to look at that Bible like you're going on a treasure hunt. Because there, there is a message in there 
that God wants to speak to you every day. I'm up to uh, three different uh, Bible plans that I'm I'm reading every day, um, and I just happened into one of them. I'm reading the Revised Common Lectionary of Daily Readings from the Lutherans. Um, believe it or not, even Catholics have a lectionary that have daily Bible readings in them, right? The Catholic daily readings, I just discovered that one. And then I've been reading um, uh, the, the Book of Common Prayers version uh, from the Episcopalian Church for many years. Uh, this is the Book of Common Prayer 1979 Daily Office Lectionary. Well, it doesn't matter whether this comes from these different churches, high church and you know, all these different things. They're just passages of Scripture. And they were chosen by people back when they actually believed. A lot of these denominations have moved further and further away from faith. The Episcopalian Church, I, I don't, you're not going to find many of them these days that are actually Bible-believing churches, but there are still some out there. But these lectionaries uh, provide daily readings, and they're all over the Scripture, right? So the Revised Common uh, if you're, you're, you're looking into these Revised Common Lectionary, I can rec recommend that one. And uh, the Book of Common Prayer Daily Office Lectionary. And that's what I read out of every single day. And I see all sorts of really, really good stuff that the Lord, you know, uh, leads me to. Now, um, the, uh, the YouVersion Bible app that you can get on your phone has many, many different Bible reading plans. And some of them are just for like a week. You know, are you going through this? Are you going through that? Are you going through anger, depression, you know, this, that, the other thing? Uh, you know, are you in debt? Are you, there's a million different. And so they'll give you scriptures to read each day. So they're, you know, shorter versions. We went through, I led our church through the entire Bible. Um, the last year was 2018. Anyway, we went all the way through the entire Bible. So there were huge chunks of scripture and I send out daily Bible readings every day, right? So if you, if you text the word, T-H-E-W-O-R-D, to 94000, it'll put you on my list. And I send out a passage every day. Right now, I've got everybody uh, in my group reading through the Joseph story. So the last chapter I sent out this morning was uh, Genesis chapter 43. We read all the way through John right before that. Uh, sometimes I send out a psalm. Sometimes I'll send out a passage from, you know, something Jesus said. Sometimes it's something from, you know, my reading. Right now, the Joseph story and the Gospel of John were not specifically from my reading. I just, uh, that's what I wanted to lead us through. So, but you need to get into the Word and look at it like it is a treasure hunt for you. Okay? Now, when we receive that promise, we receive it as an epiphany from the lips of God. What's an epiphany? That's this. Oh, man, that's awesome! That's an epiphany. Okay? It's an aha statement. I bet my hair looked really good when I took my hat off, didn't it? All right? <laughs> That's why I'm wearing a hat. My hair's a disaster today. I'm going to go with Anthony's haircut pretty soon, and then I don't have to worry about it, man. Just shave it off. And The problem is, see, the problem is my hair just doesn't look that great. You have a nice round head. I have a bumpy head, so can't do that. But in any event, you got to see it as an aha moment, man. The Lord's like, oh, man, the Lord's speaking to me. Yeah, you got to have faith that he is. And then I got to do what God's telling me in order to move forward in the promise. So here's what you need to understand. You need to be in position and in condition to receive the promise. In position, right? So the Lord may want to lead you uh, to do something within his will, a calling in your life but it might require you to get a certification or some kind of education or might require you to, uh, to go and make some things right with some people that you're still having problems with. It might require you to, uh, you know, to save some money. Who knows? You've got to be in position, and you've got to be in condition. Now, that means your faith has to be in condition, but it also means this is, this is where the, the work comes in. I need to be in a moral and spiritual condition to carry out whatever this promise is, is offering to me. So um, I keep referring to Monica and Anthony, they're back there I'm, because they're in my line of sight. And, and they're, they're working with foster kids right now, so we get to see all these wonderful... Did I see Faith running around down there earlier? 
there was a little girl running running around up on the the ledge out there, and I thought, boy, that looks like faith, but it's too far away. Even with my glasses, I couldn't tell. And then, like 10 minutes later, you guys went walking by. I was like, well, maybe you guys met her down there or something. Anyway, she was one of their foster kids. We baptized her. But they had to go through a bunch of training for this, and they still have to go through all of this stuff so they can fulfill what they believe the Lord has led them to do. Do you understand? You have to be in condition. So it is grace, but that doesn't mean that I don't have to do anything to put myself in position and in condition to be able to accomplish that promise, right? All right. Um, And then all along the way, the Holy Spirit gives us assurance that this hope is going to come because it's true, and that's faith. So everything begins with faith. We've got to believe that this God of love is real. Then we believe that he rewards those who seek him. That's Hebrews 11, 6. Those who come to him must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those who uh, diligently seek after him. We need to believe he's made that promise to us. You need to believe he's made that promise to you. I look at it, and I can't say, well, that's just kind of generally for all God's people and whatever, but you need to see it for you. You need to see that John 3.16 is for you, right? For God so loved Sue, for God so loved Aaron, for, for God so loved Alan. I've got to see my name in that. It's got to be my promise, all right? Um, then we trust his integrity to keep them. Now I'm going to tell you, I've still got promises I'm waiting for God to fulfill. God made some promises to Israel 3,000 years ago that still haven't been fulfilled. God's sense of timing is completely different than yours or mine, right? In fact, we're going to see that in this very letter that we're reading where Peter is confronted with doubters who say, yeah, well, where's this promise of his coming? Now, that's something I didn't put here, but Jesus promised he would return. Ah, where's this promise of his coming that he, you know, that he made? He's, it's, you know, time's gone by, and it's just the same as it's always been. He's not coming back. And Peter said, yeah, but for God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So I got to allow myself to just trust the Lord who is timeless in order to receive this and just keep, understand, faith perseveres, faith endures, faith continues, faith lasts. There's people falling away right now. That's promised in the word. In the end, people will fall away. And I preached on that a couple weeks back, right? And that is an indicator that what they might have had might have been a feeling, it might have been a concept, but it wasn't a deep-seated trust in the Lord. Because if I've got that trust in the Lord, then it's going to endure, and I'm going to continue to persist in my faith. Faith even provides us with evidences of the reality of those promises until the promise itself is realized. What does Hebrews 11 one said? It says, um, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the evidence of things not seen, right? Or the conviction of things not seen. So sometimes I haven't received what the Lord has offered yet, but the faith is so strong and becomes so strong that it is evidence in and of itself. So understand that it is from faith to faith. All right. So only got through that verse tonight, but we're going to understand how we're to build on this faith next week. Let's pray together and we're done. Father, thank you so much for this group of people once again. And I pray that we will Seek you, seek your word, seek your promises, and be lifted up by that and be given hope for, uh, because of it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.